It's Thursday, March 5th. I am Martine Powers. This is an election update from Post Reports. So I announced this morning uh, that I am suspending my campaign for president. Um, I say this with a deep sense of gratitude for every single person who got in this fight, every single person who tried on a new idea, every single person who just moved a little in their notion of what a president of the United States should look like. Um, On Thursday, Senator Elizabeth Warren of Massachusetts said that she's dropping out of the race for president. Now it's just Joe Biden and Bernie Sanders left as the serious contenders against President Trump. I mean, I think one of the biggest pieces of this is gender. Annie Linsky has been covering Warren's campaign for The Post. I'm outside Senator Warren's house in Cambridge with um, probably about 150 journalists. There's like a helicopter over her house. Four years ago, Hillary Clinton, when she conceded to Donald Trump, she said, look, the hardest, highest glass ceiling has not been broken, but someday somebody will. And right now, you know, it looks like that somebody and that someone is quite far away. Gender in this race, you know, that is the trap question for every woman. Uh, If you say, yeah, there was sexism in this race, everyone says, whiner. And if you say, no, there was no sexism, about a bazillion women think, what planet do you live on? You saw this field of candidates was the most diverse in, in history, you know, multiple, very strong female candidates. And, well, Tulsi Gabbard is still in the race. She hasn't been on a debate stage for quite a while and has no real prospect of being on one. And Warren was really the strongest hope in the last few months of a female nominee. And this really closes the door and leaves the race in a position essentially between two white men who are in their 70s. You know, after the Super Tuesday results, when 14 states voted, and she did quite badly, it did seem like her path was rather narrow. We've also been reporting that um, different liberal groups were beginning to jockey and position to try to get her her endorsement. So it wasn't a complete surprise. But I think from a larger perspective, my real surprise was on Super Tuesday when she did so badly. And what is your sense of what is going to happen to the people who were supporting her up until this point? Who are they going to go to? That's a good question. And I think a lot of that is going to depend on what Senator Warren decides to do in terms of an endorsement. You know, we reported that people from Bernie Sanders' campaign have been reaching out to her surrogates. They're trying to create some sort of bridge between the two campaigns. Sanders himself has been quite solicitous to her really trying to tamp down any of the frustration and vitriol on the left that she hadn't gotten out sooner. But, you know, she also has ties to Biden and his campaign and his organization. And, I, I you know, I don't think it's a foregone conclusion which way she, she will go. Certainly her ideology, her agenda is much closer to Sanders's. But he also did quite badly on Super Tuesday, really underperforming expectations. And um, his path to the nomination also became a lot more difficult to see on Super Tuesday. And what do you think the calculus is for her in terms of whether she makes a decision on endorsing in the near-term future or if she does that later down the line? 
Look, I mean, I think we can sort of look to her behavior in 2016, where she sat out on the sidelines for almost the entire campaign. I don't think she's going to be rushed in this, but my sense is she's going to want to take a little time to decompress from the campaign that she's been working really hard on and think closely and carefully about whether she wants to sort of play the role of an outsider by getting closer to, to Sanders' campaign or influence things from the inside by going with Biden. And she actually has the skills to do both. She has a history of doing both. That's going to be one of the pieces that she's going to have to decide. Will you be making an endorsement today? We know that you spoke with both Joe Biden and Bernie Sanders uh-huh. yesterday. Uh, not today. Not, not today. Senator, I need Senator. some space around this and, and want to take a little time to think a little more. I've covered Senator Warren in some capacity or another um, for seven years for three different news organizations. Editors at all three of these news organizations have always asked me at, at some point, can you do a story and try to figure out what does Warren want? Like, what does she really want? And um, the answer has really been consistent. It's been she wants power to enact her agenda. You know, and that's been whether she's wanted to be the head of the CFPB, an agency that she created, or whether it's been being a senator. And in this campaign, um, that's what she's wanted. And I think that you can use that calculation if you want to look at what she's going to do in terms of endorsement. Like, where is she going to get the most power to enact that agenda that she's been so focused on for, you know, really her entire career? I stood at that voting booth and I looked down and I saw my name on the ballot. And I thought, wow, kiddo, you're not in Oklahoma anymore. (laughs) Uh, That it really was a moment of thinking about how my mother and dad, if they were still here, would feel about this. I will not be running for president in 2020, but I guarantee I will stay in the fight for the hardworking folks across this country who've gotten the short end of the stick over and over. That's been the fight of my life, and it will continue to be so. So the fact that Elizabeth Warren has now dropped out of the race, how does that affect things? Pretty similar to the way we saw Amy Klobuchar and Pete Buttigieg and Tom Steyer drop out right before South Carolina, in that the immediate effect is on momentum. Does she endorse someone? Does that galvanize supporters to support that person? In terms of the delegates she's earned, those really wouldn't come into play in a way that could shape the race unless there was this contested convention and things were really tight. Because Elizabeth Warren could suspend her campaign and hold on to those delegates. Some of them will get reallocated, but hold on to the other ones. And then at the at the convention, if things are really tight, say, okay, I I release you to vote for Bernie Sanders or whoever. That being said, these delegates could vote that way anyway without her authority. The effect of having candidates drop out so early in the race is they have less delegates and less ability to influence what happens. What's really going to influence what happens in this nomination are the millions of people who haven't voted yet. I'm Amber Phillips. I analyze politics for the Fix Politics blog here at The Washington Post. So as the Democratic presidential primary has been going on and more and more candidates have been dropping out, there's been this question that I've been hearing a lot, which is what exactly happens to the delegates that have already been pledged for a particular candidate after they drop out? Two things happen to them. Some of the delegates get 
divided proportionally among whoever else did well in those states. And by well, I mean this 15% threshold that the Democratic Party has put in place in all states. You have to get that in order to get any delegates at all. So that, very broadly speaking, benefits Bernie Sanders in this Joe Biden versus Bernie Sanders race because he did well in these early states to earn delegates. Joe Biden, you know, sometimes got 15%, but but he just wasn't performing very well, very consistently in these really early states. The second thing that happens to this other pool of delegates, these congressional allocated delegates, is they can vote for whomever they want at the convention, is the short answer. If a candidate suspends his or her campaign, they're technically not ending it. And that's a way of like kind of hoarding their delegates and keeping them close to their chest. And then they get to the convention and and obviously they're not going to win the nomination. And someone like Pete Buttigieg says, okay, vote for... Biden. However, delegates aren't like robots (laughs) that vote based on what the candidate says. Delegates are more like members of the Electoral College. They're supposed to vote for whomever they were pledged to or whomever that person endorses, but they don't have to. They can go to the convention and vote for whoever they want. So I think that as we're talking about how the delegate counts are going to play out, it's important to actually understand, like, what a delegate is, how it works, and why they're so important. So basically, when you go to vote for a candidate, you're voting for delegates to represent them, not votes, because votes don't matter in terms of winning the nomination. Delegates do. And delegates are allocated two ways to candidates. One is in your congressional district, and one is the overall statewide vote. So the party when it looks at how many votes these candidates got, they look at whether they got votes in a congressional district that's more democratic, more liberal, and they have weighted that liberal district as more important to the Democratic Party. So they offer more delegates to whatever candidates got above this 15% threshold. You know, a more conservative district has less ability to weigh in on the party. So because the idea is that in November, this district probably isn't going to matter that much because it's going to go Republican anyways. So the people, even the Democrats in this community shouldn't have that much say in who the Democratic nominee will be. Exactly. And then if you expand that outward to the second way candidate gets delegates, it's also by a statewide vote. States that are more Democratic friendly have more delegates. And then that's also weighted based on population. So California offers like 400 delegates. Massachusetts, another very liberal Democratic state, offers a lot less. So how many delegates does it take to actually become the Democratic nominee? This is the one simple question, Martine, we can answer with a simple answer. 1,991. And how close are Joe Biden and Bernie Sanders to getting to that number? They're like in the 40, 50 percent range. We still have a long way to go. We're, we're in March and there are primaries all the way to June with the conventions in July. This race is shaping up the way a lot of competitive primary races have in the past, but where you still get a nominee by the convention in July. And by that, I mean, a week ago, there were a number of candidates that threatened to take delegates away from the two main candidates in the race. Now there is likely going to be a race that's between Bernie Sanders and Joe Biden going forward. And so there's a long way to go, but if somebody has like a really great night on a big night where there are a couple states voting— It could seal the deal for them in a way that makes it very difficult for that second person to actually accrue enough delegates to stop them from getting to that number. And does it make a difference whether there is a close margin between the leading candidate and the second place candidate or whether it's a total blowout and a pretty wide margin? It does not make a difference. It doesn't matter how much the second place candidate got. 
if the first place candidate gets 1,991 pledged delegates by the convention in July. However, what if they get to the convention and nobody has that number, but they're really close? Then everything's on the table at this point. We begin this thing called a contested convention. Now, it's really rare. Party officials stressed to me this hasn't happened in the past, but it's possible if you have nobody who gets that majority because they're so neck and neck on the delegate race throughout the spring and summer. Under a contested convention, you would have these delegates vote, whom they were all pledged to, if they're following good practices, and then nobody gets a majority, you would have a second ballot. That's the part that hasn't happened in like 70 years. At which point, it's a free-for-all in terms of lobbying, campaigning, negotiating, trying to cut deals to get delegates to move over to your side. That's where a person who maybe has the most delegates but not a majority would have a lot of leverage to say, listen, I got a plurality here. I'm the one with the most delegates. Clearly, the Democratic Party supports me over this person who has less delegates. So in this scenario where you have a contested convention, you have this second vote that's kind of a free-for-all, the delegates who are like the pledged delegates and supposed to be representing who regular people already voted for, are they allowed to change their mind and be like, well, this is actually really close. I need to switch switch teams and go over to this person to get them over the top. Absolutely. They could do it on the first ballot too. They just don't because it's not a good practice. There's another dynamic we need to weigh in the event of a second ballot, and it's people called superdelegates. They aren't pledged. They're members of Congress, Democratic Party officials, former governors, former presidents, former vice presidents, who just by, like, the stature of being in the Democratic Party as an elected official, get to vote for whomever they want. Now, in 2016, they got to vote on that first ballot. Bernie Sanders criticized them for being like members of the establishment waiting it for Hillary Clinton. Last time around in 2016, you talked about 2016, you will remember that before the very first vote was cast in Iowa, Hillary Clinton had 500 superdelegates at her side. She walked in campaign began 500 superdelegates. I thought that that was totally outrageous and absurd and undemocratic. So I think it is should be the decision of the people, not Washington insiders. He worked with the Democratic Party to change the rules for 2020 that pushed them to the second ballot. So let's say we get a first ballot, nobody gets a majority. All of a sudden, you have about almost 800 party officials who get to vote. That could be the big difference there for a more establishment candidate. The assumption there is that that would be pretty bad for Bernie Sanders because you would have these Democratic governors and members of Congress and party officials who— you would imagine many of whom have relationships with Joe Biden through the Democratic Party and would probably vote for him. Yes, that is a fair assumption. These tend to be people who more line up with Joe Biden in terms of the Democratic Party. So in theory, Bernie Sanders, what he did after 2016 was trying to remove the superdelegates from the early stages of the process because he felt that they were having an undue influence. But how it looks like so far, there is a potential where that could still be really bad for him, even though he took these steps to try to avoid a scenario in which the kind of heart of the establishment of the party is getting to dictate whether or not he is the nominee. Right. If they get to a contested convention and neither him nor Biden have a majority of votes, the new rules essentially push it back to where these superdelegates weigh in on the second ballot. And in the end, it's it you know possibly costs Sanders the nomination. So the fact that we are here a couple days after Super Tuesday and already it's essentially a two-person race, does that 
simplify a lot of parts of this process? It does, because it means there aren't candidates in either lane, the progressive or the moderate one, taking away delegates and making it more and more likely we get to a contested convention. It just becomes a delegate per delegate per delegate race. And if another candidate has a really good night, like if Joe Biden has another Super Tuesday, it could make it so the math is very difficult for Bernie Sanders to catch up. Anything could happen in this race. A week ago, we didn't think Joe Biden would be in it, potentially, much less the front runner. So what if Bernie Sanders has a you know, really good race and makes it difficult for Joe Biden to catch up? He could get a lot of delegates from California that are still outstanding from being counted and jump ahead of Biden in the delegate race right now. There are some Western states coming up on Tuesday, and Sanders has done well in Western states and among Latino voters. It's a delegate per delegate race among two men, but anything could happen. Amber Phillips writes about politics for the fix. That's it for this segment of Post Reports. Full episodes of our show come out every weekday afternoon. You can subscribe at postreports.com or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Martine Powers. Thanks for listening.